On Tuesday of this previous week, Tuesday of last week, uh, four of my grandkids were at the house. Anthony and Shannon had something to do uh, that day. So, so my wife was watching the kids. I was here at church doing a couple of things. And so I'm on my way home and I gave, I gave a call. I said, uh, would the kids like lunch? Uh, I'll offer them either uh, pizza or uh, Wendy's. So I heard them scream in the background, Wendy's. So, so I, I pulled into Wendy's, right? And, uh, you know, chicken nuggets and, and, and burgers and, and fries, you know? Uh, now, what was important for me to let you know is that that day I was fasting. Uh, I, I, not by choice. It wasn't spiritual. I was having a medical procedure the day following. None of your business, thank you. <clears throat> no, it's something you really don't want. To, we don't want to go there, you know. But I was having a medical procedure which required that I, I would just have liquids that day and a lot of liquids in the evening, if you know what I'm talking about. So uh, a lot of liquids. Oh, man, it was horrible. So, so, so anyway, right, so I completely forgot, you know, uh, that I wasn't supposed to eat anything because like three seconds after they gave me this bag with steaming hot french fries, the odor, the, the, afraid, the aroma of french fries filled my car and I became intoxicated. You know, it's like I was on 111. If you ever tried getting on 111, you know, uh, after you've been in like one of the stores there, like a McDonald's or, you know, branching up, it's impossible. The traffic is so bad there. So I'm trying to pay attention and, I, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm not thinking. And so I reached my hand into the bag and I grabbed what I was hoping was a nice, big, juicy French fry. But instead, I pulled out this tiny little like inch and a half piece of French fry that was so skinny. I, it didn't even qualify for a French fry. So I stuck it in my mouth anyway, you know. And, and, and I, know, I know what Adam and Eve felt like when the Bible says when they ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes were open. All of a sudden, I realized what I did. I'm not supposed to eat. So I tried to, you know, roll down the window as fast as I can and spit it out. I wound up spitting on my car and on myself. It's true. So I had to wipe that off while I'm trying to navigate through the traffic, you know, and and, and, and I suddenly just, just, all of a sudden, I just forgot. The aroma just got to me and, and food just, you know, I forgot I wasn't supposed to eat. And, and my eyes were open, you know. Uh, when I think about, I think about Adam and Eve, and I think about when, what, what happened to them was that instead of their being illuminated with, with light and understanding and, and uh, wisdom, because it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Instead of, instead of light entering into them, what happened was the very opposite. Darkness literally entered into them. In fact, the Apostle Paul, and interestingly that it's Paul who points this out, who, if you remember when he was Saul, who was persecuting the church, and when he sees the light of the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, what happens to him? He becomes blinded by that glorious light. And for three days, he, he can't see anything, right? And until... Until one of the disciples is on mission by the Lord to pray for, for Brother Saul that he would receive his sight. And so, so I just think it's just so ironic that, that Paul is the one who writes, who prays for us, prayed for the Ephesians, even though we weren't around at the time, but prayed that, listen, that God would grant to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. 
opened that we would know what is the hope of his calling and his inheritance in the saints. We, we need, even we who are believers need revelation. We need to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God because spiritual knowledge and wisdom is spiritually discerned. The natural man, the Bible says, cannot understand, cannot receive the things that are of God because they are spiritually discerned. We need revelation. We need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to open and to illuminate, to open our eyes because darkness literally has has blinded the minds of those that believe not and, and literally has has confused uh, our our very understanding of what God's purpose is. Uh, revelation is therefore given. Let me say it this way. Revelation is therefore given to us, not to entertain us, but to engage us. God gives us revelation not to amuse us, but to use us. That we might become a part of the mission. That's the one, what I want to talk to you about today. And over the next several weeks, I want to talk about the different aspects and the different facets and the different phases of the mission that we might become a part of the mission. Uh, I mentioned, I think it was either last week or the week before when we were talking about the incarnation, that, that Isaiah's call to ministry began with a, with a vision. He said, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his glory filled the temple. And it shook him up. It, 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 it shook up the temple and it shook up the prophet, that, that vision that he had. But it wasn't just visual. It was also audible. And he heard the voice of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said. Who shall we send and who shall go for us? And when Isaiah heard those words, he said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. And at that moment, Isaiah became a part of the mission. This morning, I hope that you'll become a part of the mission because, as I said, revelation is given not to entertain but to engage us and not to amuse us but to use us to become a part of the glorious mission of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about, you know, that French fry in my mouth and as much as I tried to spit it out, you know, I, I really, I really... And, 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 and while it's true, there was no harm, no foul done, you know, because it, it really didn't pass the most important parts, you know. But, but, it was, but with Adam and Eve, you know, there was no spitting out the forbidden fruit. There, there was no reversal of the consequences that were to follow. At that moment, death entered into the experience of the human family. And there was no going back. Uh, how many of you remember that childhood riddle uh, or rhyme? Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Once the fall has taken place, couldn't put it back together. No reversal, no, no, no going back. I don't know, maybe some of you might remember uh, one of the old Superman movies, you know, uh, and I'm talk, probably talking about somewhere in the in the 1980s, you know. Uh, one of the Superman movies, I think it was maybe one of the la the latter ones. Superman 
is, is unable to save the world and Lois Lane at the same time. And as a result of that, Lois Lane dies. Anybody remember the, the scene in that? Yeah. So Lois Lane dies. So Superman gets so upset with himself. And, and this is the love interest of his life, right? So that, that, that he, he seeks to reverse what's happened. And so he begins to fly counter uh, rotation-wise of the, of the earth. And so he, he is, he's, he's flying around so fast. And of course, you know, you can do this if you're Superman. He, he, he reverses the, 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 the spiral uh, or the, the rotation of the earth so that he, he changes time. He goes back in time so that, that somehow or another, you know, uh, she doesn't die and uh, he's gone back in time and now he's able to save her, you know, only in Hollywood, right? Uh, not so easy for God. God, you could say, well, you know, he, he could have easily just, just moved back the time, moved, moved back the clock as though it never happened. Or, or, or he could have done so many other things. But, but, but we need to remember that it was God who set up the test. And it was God who set the tree just as he wished. And all things were taking place just as God had purposed. But it would cost him much more than the imagination of any Hollywood producer or director. It would cost him everything. It would cost him the life of his own son. Now this morning I want to look at one aspect of the mission, of his mission, in his own words. And I think it's important to start out with talking about and describing the, the, the mission by describing what Jesus felt his mission was. And so I want to look at a portion of scripture that's probably familiar to us. Uh, it's from uh, Luke, the, the 19th chapter. It has to do, there's a story about a, a, a tax collector. And he's not just a tax collector. He is the chief tax collector, probably of the whole country. And his name is Zach, Z Zacchaeus. You, you, you know him. And uh, as a result of Jesus and the ministry passing through Jericho, him wanting to get a, 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 a you know, just a a vision of Jesus to, to see what was going on. Uh, because he was a man who was short, he climbs into a sycamore tree. He couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. So he climbs into the sycamore tree. And then Jesus walks right underneath that tree, looks up at Zach and says, Zach, come on down, man. I got I to gotta have fellowship with you today. How does he know my name? You know? And he wants to come to my house. And of course, he's opened Jesus to all kinds of ridicule and an accusation that he has fellowship he eats with publicans and with sinners and and so and so the the result is that it so impacts this guy zach that he stands up you know at, in the midst of his house and he says he says you know what he says the thing that has controlled me the thing that's been the modus operandi of my life is now changed salvation brings about transformation and so he stands up and he says he announces to Jesus, he says, the half of my wealth, I give it to the poor. Half of everything I have, I'm just going to give it to the poor. And if I have stolen anything or taken anything by fraud, I'm going to restore it four, fourfold to anyone that, 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 that comes forth. And then Jesus stands up and he makes this statement. And the second sentence is, is, is his mission statement that we want to look at this morning. So in verse nine of Luke 19, Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that 
which is lost. The most concise and precise definition of his mission, of his mission, and one aspect, one aspect only, and and we're going to look over the next several weeks because there are many aspects or facets to his mission, but one that involves us that is most important to us because our destiny depends upon him fulfilling his mission. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus choose? The title, the Son of Man. I mean, why didn't he just? Why didn't he just to say, "I've come to seek and to save the lost"? Or he could have said, "The Son of God has come to seek and to save the lost." He could have said, "Emmanuel has come to seek and to save the lost." He could have said, "The Good Shepherd has come to seek and to save the lost." Any of those titles, self-imposed of Jesus, would have been accurate and would have been appropriate. But instead, he chose specifically. This phrase, the Son of Man, why did he choose that? 92 times in the Gospels and in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. In fact, it is the most frequently self-imposed title of Jesus. He loved talking about himself as the Son of Man. He said, just a couple of, he said, he said, just as the Son of Man is lifted up, so he will draw all men unto himself. That you might know that the Son of Man has power in order to forgive sins. What's easier to say to the sick of the palsy, be healed or your sins are forgiven. But that you might know the Son of Man has power in order to forgive sins. He loved referring to himself as the Son of Man. Why? Charles Spurgeon said this, It seems to me that Christ loved being a man so much so that he desired to constantly honor manhood. Listen, he was not reluctant in becoming a man. It wasn't like his arm was being twisted. He voluntarily became joined to our humanity. The Son of God never looked back with regret at becoming a human being. The writer of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. To identify with us by becoming one with us. Son of God. Becoming the son of man. And rejoicing in the fact that he has become a human being. In contrast. You know. Whenever the father spoke. And there are three occasions in, w- in which the silence of heaven is broken. And the father speaks from heaven on two of those occasions. And points out and authenticates and vindicates the sonship of Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And the third time he glorifies his son. But to the father, the father wants us to know this is none other than the second person of the Godhead, the son of God, co-equal, co-glorious with the father. But Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Next thing I want you to do is consider this. This is This is love so superior to that of Superman's love. I mean, Superman loved Lois Lane, right? Come on. All he did was fly around the earth. Jesus died for the world so that he might demonstrate his love for us. I want you to consider his courage, his his raw determination. One of the first things at at the commencement of his ministry, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There is a confrontation with the powers of darkness. 
and for 40 days. And what was, what was the number one issue? The number one issue was about food. Taking us back to the garden. You know, because food was, was with Adam and Eve, they looked at it. It was desirable to make one wise. It was desirable for food. And isn't it so ironic that the first temptation had to do with bread, about food. And Jesus overcomes the wicked one there in the wilderness. And, and, and the Bible says that Satan flees from him for a more opportune season. And he returns in the power of the Spirit. I mean, just look at him through his, his determination to set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was undeterred to pay the price for our redemption. He's forsaken by all of his disciples. He, I mean, he is alone. He, he, the, the scripture says he, he walked through the, the wine press of the wrath of God completely alone, even forsaken by his heavenly father. I, I call this determination. I call this the, the power of his will to submit to the will of God. You know, there's a great verse over in the book of Isaiah. It says, it says, that the word that God has gone forth out of God's mouth, it will accomplish what he has purposed. It will prosper in the thing which he has sent it to do. Now, if that's true about the spoken word of God, how much more so is that true about the, the word that became flesh to dwell amongst us? Impossible for him to fail. But what is mission impossible with men became mission possible with God. Several months after the Iraq war began, now it's 10 years ago, several months after the, the fighting began, President Bush flew onto an aircraft carrier, made an appearance, banners over the celebratory atmosphere of, of the, the, the armed forces that were gathered there on that, on that vessel to celebrate. And, and the banner said, Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. But the war raged on for another almost nine and a half years. I think of all the things that President Bush may have looked back at at his career. He may have looked back at that day and said, you know what, if I had to do that all over again, I think I would have done it differently. I don't think I would have announced prematurely. Mission accomplished. Because there were many more lives that were lost after the announcement. It was a little premature. Even now, there's kind of a controversy that's taking place. Though last week or about two weeks ago, the the, the last of the, the, the allied troops left Iraq. And there's, and there's no more of our armed forces in Iraq. And, and it's been declared, you know, the war is over. But there's a real reluctance to have, say, like a ticket tape parade and to welcome home the veterans and to honor them for their service because the condition in which we have left Iraq right now may be teetering on the, on the brink of civil war. And that the day after the last soldier left, there was about 75 people that were killed in bombs that were, that were uh, just coordinated throughout Iraq. So it may have been premature. But listen, let me tell you this. There is no ambiguity. There is no doubt about his mission having been accomplished. And the proof of that, the, the absolute verification of that is his resurrection. 
that he has introduced a whole new kind of life, an indestructible life, and you and I can have, be a part of that. In this, in this brand new year, you can have, a, a, listen, you can have a new kind of life, a life that is indestructible. He that, that believes in me, said Jesus, has already passed from death unto life. I heard this morning uh, while I was listening to the news, while I was getting dressed, one of the things that people don't want to hear in this new year, you know, like there are phrases that, 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 that have been, you know, kind of popular and have been used maybe too often in this last year. They don't want to hear, uh, 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 they don't want to hear too big to fail. Did you hear that? Too big to fail? Uh, corporations, too big to fail. Uh, Banks too big to fail. Even now we're talking about nations like, like Greece or Italy or some of the others that are, that are you know, in danger of bankruptcy. Too big to fail. And so, and so these corporations and entities that are too big to fail, what they, they need somebody to come and rescue them. They need somebody to bail them out. They need somebody to prop them up. But when it comes, listen, to, to the only one who cannot fail, for whom it is impossible for God to fail, God doesn't need and he's propping up. He doesn't need anybody to rescue him. doesn't need anybody to bail him out. In fact, God is in the business of rescuing us. And he's in the business of bailing us out of a debt that we could never pay. That's God's business. I think maybe Isaiah 53 is one of the most prophetic and, and, and one of the most uh, descriptive uh, demonstrations of, of and this was 750 years before the cross of what of what the mission of Jesus was all about. I wish I had time to look at it all, but I don't. I'm just going to give you a couple of highlighted verses from Isaiah 53. It be, really begins in a couple of verses before at the end of 52 where it says that his appearance and his, his visage was marred more than that of any man. He, people looked at him and were astonished at what happened to him. Notice this, it says in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. For he was cut off, not for himself, but he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He will be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and I will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. What a description of the mission of Jesus. He gave himself for us. He paid a debt he didn't owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. Can you see him? In the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood. Can you see him wrestling and, 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 and struggling with God and then accepting the cup of the wrath of God, which is beyond our ability to really fully comprehend that what Jesus suffered physically, what Jesus suffered spiritually, emotionally, and and in every way is tantamount to being eternally separated from God. And he drank the cup to its full, emptied its dregs. Can you see him before Pilate as he was stripped and, and, and the, the 
the embarrassment, the, the shame, the, the suffering that he endured. Can you see Jesus suffering in that way and failing? Failing to fulfill all that God had purposed? Impossible. It's too hard for us to imagine that all of that was for naught, that all of that would, would somehow not succeed in what he had, had come to accomplish. He will accomplish all that God had purposed him to accomplish. See him hanging on the cross, becoming sin for us who knew no sin, that we in turn might become the righteousness of God in Christ. See him becoming a curse for us. I think that three hours of darkness was the reason why God covered that, 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 that none could really look and that even heaven itself could not look upon him as he became sin for us. Could you imagine him failing? The reason he cried out from the cross, the triumphal cry, one word in Greek, one, one, one glorious declaration of victory, it's mission accomplished. It is finished when he paid the price in full for my sins and for your sins. So, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So here's the question. Who did he come to seek? He came to seek and save the lost, lost sinners. You know, in this politically correct culture, for the church to, to speak about people being lost and sinful, I, I know the culture views it as being offensive, it views it as being intolerant, views it as being narrow-minded and, 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 and somehow being insensitive. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, is that it is, it is the, the greatest diagnosis that we can be faced with, that we are eternally lost without a Savior. It points to our very need of a Savior, that without a Savior, that, that word lost, to be eternally lost is a, a foreboding, it's, it's a it's a, it's a word that is, that is frightening in and of itself to, to, to think about it. Our mind can only go so far with, with trying to understand what lostness is all about. But Jesus came for the lost. He came for sinners. The verse of Scripture we looked at a couple of weeks ago said that without controversy, you know, great is the mystery of, of, of godliness. That without controversy, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners of whom Paul says, I am the chiefest. No, he came for to seek the lost. I, I, I love the word seek there because what it tells me is this, that none of us sought for him. There's a, a great verse, Isaiah 65, verse one says, I was found by those that sought me not. Not a one of us here this morning who's ever found Christ, found Christ because we sought him first. If we ever seek him, it's because of sovereign grace. It's because, just as it says, we love him because he first loved us. Well, we begin to seek him because he first sought us. Sovereign grace at work in us, drawing us to himself with cords of a man and bands of love. Does he draw us out that we might seek life and that more abundantly?
Beloved, the only sin that can keep a man from heaven is the rejection of the mission and the name, the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. You've heard it said, right? God only helps those who help themselves. I mean, I remember hearing that when I was a kid when my mother wanted me to do something, you know? God helps those that help. No, the fact of the matter is, is that God doesn't help those that help themselves. God helps the helpless. God rescues those that are lost. And this is the very heart of God, that we've got to come to that place of acknowledging our lostness. Because Christ can only be a savior to those who acknowledge their need for him. Because if, if you think that you can, you know, be okay on your own, then here's the problem. Then you're not looking for, you're not looking for mercy. You're looking for justice. And if you look for justice, it will not go well for you. But if you recognize your lostness and come to him as a savior, he will save you to the uttermost. I was thinking about this the other day. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I loved living in Brooklyn in the 1950s. Some of you can relate to me. Come on, say amen. I mean, I, I, I think back, you know, I think, I think that living in the 1950s and living in Brooklyn, what a privilege it was. I think the 1950s was one of the greatest, you know, periods of time in, in American history. You know, it was great to be alive. In the, and one of my experiences of, of, of loving Brooklyn in the 1950s was going to Coney Island with my family. I just loved Coney Island, you know. And uh, I remember this one occasion when I went to Coney Island. It was just me and my mom. And, and uh, you know, she loved, it. she loved the beach. I loved the beach. I was in the water. I was swimming in the water. And, and for whatever reason it was, maybe the tide was coming in. She had to move the blanket. We were like probably right up close to the, to the shoreline. And, and, and she moved the blanket. Now I'm about seven years old. So, so I'm a little guy, right? I'm about seven years old. And I get out of the water and I can't find mama. You know, it's like, did, did I drift down? You know, uh, what happened? And, and I, for about 20 minutes, I'm looking for mom and I'm lost because there's no mom to be found. I didn't panic. You know, I went right over to a policeman and I say, hey, I think I'm lost. He says, come with me. And he took me over to this first aid shelter. And there I sat waiting for somebody to show up. I'll never forget that. You know, I, I, I just, I think about it now as a parent, I, I must, my mother must have been, you know, she must have been frightened. She must have been scared, you know, because uh, when you come from Brooklyn, you get a scared, you know. She, she must have been upset. She must have been angry. And, and then when she found me, she was relieved. But she came looking for me. She came searching for the kid from Brooklyn who was lost. And she found me. You know, fast forward my life, 18 years, about, about 20, 24, 25 years of age. I was just as lost as a 25-year-old as I was when I was seven years old. And the night that my wife and I birth, both heard the gospel for the first time, no one needed to tell me how lost I was. But no one needed to tell me that that someone had 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 come to seek and to save the lost. It was intuitive. I knew that he had come to seek for me and for Kathy that night. 
and we gave our hearts to Christ. Here's the big question that I want to ask you this morning. How does he save the lost? How does Jesus go about? All right, so if he's come to seek and to save the lost, and if he finds us in our lost condition, then how does he save us? Let me just share with you one of the greatest theological words that you will ever learn is one of the simplest terms. It's called substitution. Jesus Christ substituted himself for us. That is the penalty that we deserve was laid upon him. He gave himself for us. I said it already. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. He he paid a debt he didn't owe. Substitution. You know that, that, that voice that Isaiah heard? Who shall I send and who shall go for us was really nothing but an echo that took place in the chamber before time began, before the the triune God. When the Father said, who shall I send and who shall go for us? And Jesus stepped forward and said, here am I, Father, Send, send me. And Jesus came and he gave himself. I mean, the whole mission was about giving himself. The whole mission was about laying down his life so that through his blood, we would have the forgiveness of sins, that through his blood, we would be set free from the power of Satan and set free from the power of sin. Maybe Romans chapter 5, maybe this sums it up. Because, because I, I know right now, and I've dealt with this as a, as a question before as a pastor, people will say to me, you know, it's just not right. Why should we all be judged with, with Adam? You know, you, you stuck the French fry in, in, in your mouth. You know, I didn't. He stuck the fruit in his mouth. I didn't. How come we get punished with him? And the fact of the matter is, is that God in his wisdom d- determined to deal with the human race by two representatives, the first Adam and the last Adam. That if God would deal with every single human being individually, none could be saved. But because God deals with Two individuals as the representatives of a people in Adam all die. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Maybe this explains it. Romans 5 verse 15 says this. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin lent to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and the gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through Jesus Christ, through this one man, Jesus Christ. The exchange, substitution. You know, if that's all you know about theology or all you will ever know about theology, it's the, it's, it's the happiest, it's the greatest word of all. Because we realize that somebody said, here am I, crucify me. Here am I, punish me. Here am I, take my life for their life. I'll never get tired of saying it. His achievements, his accomplishments, his righteousness imputed to us. Our crimes and misdemeanors imputed to him. 
in the exchange that took place. So that now, this mission that is accomplished is a mission that is ongoing. It's a mission that we're to become a part of. When, when, when we accept Christ, we become a part of, of the rescue. We become, my wife loves a good rescue story. Honey, this is the best rescue story because we, we're a part of his story. But we also could become a part of, a part of what God is doing in, in restoring and, and healing the breach and, and, and becoming a part of the mission. I want to close with this kind of story that I read from uh, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, uh, Jim Simbola. Uh, is that how you pronounce his name, Simbola? Uh, in his book, You Were Made for More, he relates that in his congregation, four of the members of his church died on 9-11-2001. One of them was a police officer. And the funeral was being held at the Brooklyn Tabernacle for the police officer. And Rudy Giuliani was present for the funeral and asked if he could say a few words. So in his book, he quotes Mayor Giuliani, and I wanted to share that with you. He says, you know, I've learned something through all of this. This is Mayor Giuliani speaking. He says, let me see if I can express it to you. He says, when everybody was fleeing that building, the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into the building. Do you think that they said to themselves, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? Or I wonder what percentage of whites are up there? Or I wonder how many Jews are there? Let's see, how many people are making $400,000 a year or $24,000 a year? No, he says, when you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you like it if a cop treated you like this on the 75th floor and said to you, excuse me, but we've got to remove the bosses first? Don't think so. I confess, he says, I haven't always lived that way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do that. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. And then and then the pastor goes back and says this, I sat there thinking, my goodness, the mayor is preaching a truth that has eluded so many of our churches throughout New York and throughout the country. He may have stood for other politics or other policies that I could not agree with, but on that day, he was right on the mark. The truth of what he said penetrated my heart. The world you and I, he writes, that we live in is falling apart before our eyes. We are are God's only representatives on this planet and simply cannot take the time to pick and choose who needs help. They all need help. They all need the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They all need to to be rescued from the horror of an eternity apart from God. They all need help. Who shall I send? And who shall go for us? Have you heard his voice this morning?
If you have, I hope you will say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that on this first day of this new year, there's a new hope that's set before us. There's a hope that we can be a part of the mission, that we can be those that are being rescued and that you're using to rescue others. Freely we have received, so freely we're to give. I pray this morning, Father, this message will impact us beyond this first day of the new year, that it will impact us because the revelation that that you are a savior comes to us not to entertain us, but to engage us, not to amuse us, but to use us. That we would become a part of what the Lord is doing in this hour and in this generation. That we've come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. I pray that even now, Lord, that men and women would hear the voice of God. That he would rescue some today. I don't know. There may be one this morning or two or three that are here this morning that have never accepted Christ as Savior. Would you, would you, would you just do that right now? Would you say, okay, I admit that I'm lost, that I need a Savior, and just begin that conversation with Christ right now by just simply saying, Lord, save me in this lost condition. Come into my life. Be the Savior of my life. Forgive me of my sins. And if you're here this morning and this message impacts you with the, the, the knowledge that God wants to use you over the next several weeks, I just want you to be praying. I want you to be thinking about how God wants to incorporate you into His story, into His mission. So, Father, we thank you today that you have a plan and a purpose for us. And that plan and purpose, oh God, is to work all things together for the good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. Let's all stand together and worship him.